You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it is Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly. Well, FOMO, fear of missing out, applies to so much and it drives some to do things, drives others just crazy. Safe to say many may be feeling it big time as they are sheltering in place about what they're missing while they stay at home. Writing about how to find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest is Patrick McGinnis, venture capitalist, author of the new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. By the way, he and I believe his co-author will be hosting a virtual book launching party today at 6 p.m. ET if you don't want to miss out on that. Um, Patrick joins us on the phone from New York. Patrick, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, great to have you here. Tell us, and I'm not sure if it was a co-author, forgive me, but I had seen the promotion about you guys doing this virtual book launch. Um, tell us a little bit about the idea behind this book. Sure. No, it's not a co-author, but it's a good friend and somebody who writes about these topics as well. So he's a perfect person to be there. Um, so uh, I'm, I, basically, this book is, is a reflection of the where we are today as a society, how we spend our time. And I invented FOMO when I was back in business school at Harvard Business School in the year 2003, before there was any social media. But now we're in a place where all of us are living with FOMO. We are inundated with information and social media and all these influences, and so we have to find a way to deal with it. All right, so can we go back to that first thing? I, I can't skip past that because I uh, I mentioned this to my two teenagers that I was going to interview you today and that you're the inventor of FOMO, and they're like, we want to hear more about this. So on behalf of Will and Henry, I'm asking this question. <laughs> how did you how did you come up with this? What was the what was the germ of the idea here? Yeah, so listen, I, I, uh, I grew up in a small town in Maine, and it was a very calm place, not a lot going on. And then I lived in New York, but I, uh, I was working all the time, so I didn't have time for and then uh, right before I went to business school, there were two things that happened in, here in New York City that really affected me. Number one was I was working in venture capital in 2000, and so everything blew up, and we basically lost all our money, and it was very traumatic. But far worse than that was I lived through 9-11. I lived yeah. in lower Manhattan, and we all remember what that was like. And so as a result, I just wanted to live life to the fullest. It was carpe diem for me. And when I got to HBS, you know, it's such a choice-rich environment in terms of the amounts of you know, classes and job opportunities and parties and trips and and all of these things were were happening and I just wanted to do all of them and even though I didn't there was no social media in fact Mark Zuckerberg was across the river working on the first version of Facebook at the exact same time that I was uh, over at business school um, even though we didn't have social media we all lived in such close proximity to each other and we could compare ourselves to each other that I basically felt this anxiety that I was never doing enough and I couldn't keep up and I started calling that a fear of missing out I shortened it to FOMO, and I wrote an article in our school newspaper called Social Theory at HBS, McGinnis' Two Foes, and I talked all about FOMO and its culture in our campus. Wow. And that it caught so on. Cool. It went viral. Well, you know, it's funny. I have to thank you guys because it went viral on campus. Then I graduated and forgot about it. But Bloomberg Business Week magazine wrote about it in 2007 in the context of HBS. That's the first time I saw it uh, outside of when I wrote about it. And then slowly it sort of crept into the vocabulary because, you know, every year kids were graduating from business schools and, and bringing it to all of the firms that they went to work for. 
Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, we're happy to be a, a footnote in in the creation and, of this. And and uh, Patrick, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's such a big thing, right? We talk about this like just trying to have balance and just being present, enjoying where you are, rather than thinking about what you're missing. And so, how do you get to this in a world where like everybody's having a hard time about what they're missing right now, you know, or what they're going to be missing on the other side of this because we can't go back to life as we knew it. It's so true. And listen, it's been interesting because in the beginning of the pandemic, we all felt, I think, a sense of relief that we didn't have that social pressure. And, yeah. you know, it goes beyond social pressure. It also is about how we spend our money and how we invest our money. It has all these other implications. But for that one moment, I remember thinking, oh my God, I haven't had FOMO in two weeks. <laughs> and then over time, as we started to sort of realize this was going to drag on, I think we all started to feel it. And the big thing to remember with FOMO is that FOMO is caused by two things. Number one, it's the perception that something better is out there happening than what you're doing at the moment. So perception can be, be deception. You have to really dig into whether something is as good as it looks on the surface. And the second is it's about herd behavior, following the crowd. So when you feel FOMO, ask yourself, is this something I truly want to do because it's something I want to do? Or am I feeling pressure to sort of keep up with the Joneses, the external pressure on me? Can I just say what's really interesting is, and, I, and maybe this is all of a sudden like everybody doing Zooms and, you know, there's tons of now fitness Zoom classes where initially there wasn't a lot of things to choose from, right? Everybody was ramping up and I, I kind of loved it because the world became so simple and there weren't a ton of things I had to make decisions on. And now it's like, do I want to do this Zoom fit cl- fitness class or this one? Do I want to do this Zoom family meeting or this one? Like it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable how, you know, again, FOMO hits even in this world. That's the thing that kind of has blown my mind about this is what has happened is we, we, so we, you know, we all stay home, but the thing that provokes much of our FOMO, which is, you know, connectivity and our cell phones and social media, we're actually on it more now than we were before. Yeah. My screen time, and I'm careful about this. Look at your screen time, everybody. Like, it's frightening how much Ugh, time we're spending on our devices, brutal. right? And so we're just, we're getting into actually kind of a worse place than we were before, I would say. Let's continue our conversation with Patrick McGinnis. He's got a new book out. It's called Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. Joining us on the phone on launch day, as Carol mentioned, he's got a big event tonight, virtual, of course, because that's the world we're living in. And Patrick, first of all, thanks for sticking with us. And I have to ask you, you know, we were starting in the first part of our conversation to get into this notion of sort of how the world has changed and how FOMO still is creeping into what we're doing. What is the effect of sort of how we think about missing out or you also talk about FOBO, fear of a better option? How do we think about that differently, do you think, on the other side of this as we get to what some people are calling sort of the next normal? Yeah, it's a really important question because I think we have a lot to learn in this moment. And if we pay attention and put down our phones for a minute and think about what's going on, we can come out of this actually better people, uh, better society. And so I would think on the FOMO side, it's really about paying attention right now to what you truly miss and what you realize you don't really miss, Hmm. writing that down actually. And then when you reemerge into the real world, remembering these things, like it's incredible the little things I miss. I live in New York City. I miss the subway. Uh, I miss going to a lot of the restaurants in the neighborhood. What I don't miss is overscheduling myself or, or being stressed out about some of the things that don't really matter. So I think thinking about that right now and being introspective about that is helpful. 
phobo, which is a fear of a better option. Uh, this is the other thing that I wrote about back in business school, but it never got famous. But it's just as bad, I would say, worse than FOMO, because FOBO is about never sort of accepting a deal, always wanting to trade up, always wanting to wait for something better to come along. And I think that we've seen in this pandemic that the people who were waiting for something better to come along when it came to making the hard decisions about closing down and social distancing, uh, they found out very quickly that delaying decision-making actually has terrible effects. I totally agree with that. Wow, I think about that's the, such an interesting insight. The, right. The amount of time, like you stew over making a decision, sometimes you just got to just do it and move on. Totally. I mean, this this is a great example in, in public policy, with whether it's COVID or it's, or it's Brexit. But it's also, if you think about you know, entrepreneurs versus incumbent companies, these traditional companies that they, they have all this money and resources, but they can't move quickly. And the reason why, you know, the Audis get eaten up by the Teslas is because the startups have to move. They don't have the resources just to sit around and wait for something better. Yeah. Well, and there's, it also feels like many folks are gaining a sense of clarity to your earlier point about FOMO, about sort of what they need and what they they don't need. But also when a lot is stripped away, maybe you stop thinking, well, I'm going to do this thing next. And I'm really just doing this until I get a chance to do X. And there's also this sense, it feels like right now, Patrick, that you know, we're all much more aware of our mortality in in some ways and, and maybe saying either, okay, I'm going to make that decision to do something different or maybe I need to sort of reassess and, and really be honest about how I'm feeling about this situation right now and not always be a grass is greener sort of person. That's for sure. The, the reality is that we are having this opportunity, but just with, as what we lived with in 9-11, there was this period of introspection, and then we sort of <laughs> resumed these sorts of behaviors yeah. that we wish we hadn't done. And so I actually suspect that there will be a wave of massive FOMO when we are able to live our lives again. And I think it's okay for a little while because when you have FOMO, it means there's something to miss out on, so yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> but we, we definitely want to be conscious of what we've learned right now because you know if we learn something and pay attention, we can just live much more decisively supplies. How do you apply FOMO in the workplace? Oh, it's a very, uh, anybody been on LinkedIn lately and seen all of your friends with their promotions and you start yeah. to feel like you're just not good enough? I mean, that is, that is in, an incredibly uh, sort of active use case. But really, uh, I think about FOMO in terms of not only in terms of not being sort of grateful or thankful for what you do have and then more fixating on what you don't have, but also in terms of running businesses. Uh, when businesses start to do things because of FOMO, when Pepsi brings Crystal Pepsi on the market because they want to keep up with Sprite, uh, when you're doing things for the wrong reasons because you're following in the crowd, you are apt to make mistakes. And so how do you think, we've been asking sort of big thinkers that, this question, like what are the underappreciated ways that you think we change as either humans or business people, investors uh, on the other side of this? So I have a feeling um, that it's unfortunate that this whole sort of situation has become quite political. Mm. And I think that we are going to see through the rest of the year that the political divide that is created by this is going to play out in our election. And then we are going to see effects on the election and potentially with voting and voters voting rights and things like that. And so I think the big question that I ask myself as I look at this pandemic is, what is the role that it will have in, in um, affecting our democracy? And how can we as citizens come together to actually defend something that's so precious to us? And I think that's going to be the conversation this year. 
Right now, we're all dealing with the medical emergency. Next, we'll be dealing with the economic impact, and we're going to be dealing with the impact to our democratic systems. And yeah. I do think about FOMO in terms of an election year, fear of missing out on, you know, re-election, and do you make the wrong policy calls, right. potentially, Yeah, because absolutely. you're concerned about that. And I, I, I'm not trying to get political, but you yeah. do think about the urgency That's of that. That's an interesting point. Interesting point. All right, Patrick McGinnis, congratulations on the book. It's out yeah. today, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. That pivot to politics there at the end that he made. That's the Georgetown Education talking right there, Carol Masser. Uh, Just saying. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Just alum from Georgetown. Sliding that in. Uh, <laughs> graduate of the School of Foreign Service down at Georgetown. Patrick McGinnis, uh, congratulations on the book. Check it out. Inventor of FOMO. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are talking a lot about reopening and one state uh, that has largely reopened. We're going to go there right now, and it is the state of Georgia, my home state. Frank Patterson joining us. He's been a guest on this program before, President and CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios. Joining us on the phone from that fine city, the ATL. Frank, really nice to talk to you again. Hey, Jason. Good to talk to you. Eager to catch up with you and Carol. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, making some time. I know it's busy down there. Give us a sense of what's going on uh, on the ground, because as I said, obviously, we've been watching very closely from here, you know, living at the epicenter, what's going on down in Georgia and Atlanta. What's the scene? Well, I mean, uh, as you've probably seen, we have uh, folks coming out uh, a little bit more from their homes. And I know personally, my wife and I have begun to sort of venture out into the neighborhood uh, and um, uh, it's, it's good to see uh, our neighbors out uh, again. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a caution. You can tell that um, while some of the activities have been opened up, uh, a lot of us are still being quite cautious. And so what does it mean for the business? Because you guys are stacked up. I mean, just by, you know, just by the numbers and, and you know them obviously uh, better than I do. But I mean, we're talking about 18 sound stages. We're talking about 700 acres, a million square feet under one roof. I mean, the <laughs> second largest purpose-built studio in North America. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is a busy place. Where are you in, in terms of getting back up and running? Yeah, as you as you as you mentioned, we were packed uh, when the virus hit, uh, and there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, you know, historically, we've never seen this kind of money spent on the production of entertainment content in the history of our industry. Right? I mean, Wall Street's been pouring more money into the pipeline than we've had the capacity to produce uh, in recent years. Obviously, because of uh, all the developments with the streaming technologies, so we were really busy. Uh, productions began to shut down, as you might imagine, in March. And we just said about the business of uh, my team on the ground at Pinewood Atlanta, you know, creating what we think are going to be the next next new best practices and protocols for getting back to work. Because uh, we believe, uh, you know, sometime this summer, productions are going to want to return. And, of course, we have to be prepared. So we've been putting a lot of work into what, um, as everyone says these days, you know, our new normal is for production. 
Yeah, and figuring out those best practices, I mean, it's going to be really, really tricky. And I know we've been having some conversations about it, um, especially when it comes to content creation, making movies. Let's, let's ask you uh, just one question before uh, we get to our news guys. Uh, Frank, if we can, what does that, you know, what are those processes at this point? What Just quickly. Yeah, well, quickly, we focused on three areas that I think everyone's concerned about. One is just sort of studio access and lot management, right? How do we manage the work on, on the lot and manage the way people work together? And then what kind of improvements can we make to our facilities uh, to make them healthier and safer? So, for example, air handling systems and swanky hand-washing stations and elect- electrostatic spray technology. You know, the new kinds of technologies that we can put in place in our facilities to make uh, the, you know, the work processes safer. And then the last is just sort of what we call better practices and protocols for how we're going to work together, how our crews are going to work together. Yeah. We've been collaborating with studios and guilds and unions and associations to try to come up with a best practices uh, set of guidelines you know, in the next 30, 45 days. So, Frank, let's dig into that. We, we caught up with Jane Rosenthal of the Tribeca Film Festival and talking about, you know, a lot of times when you're, when you're filming, it's very intimate, right? And people and actors are next to one another. There's a lot of folks on the tech side, the whole team, you know, they're all surrounding them. I, I mean, can you do that going forward until we get a vaccine or no? Yeah, no, we can. I mean, there are plenty of tricks to the trade. I'm a big fan of Jane and, and, and love her movies. And, you know, we, we tend uh, at uh, time with Atlanta, the shows that we're involved with tend to be these bigger tentpole, you know, uh, mm-hmm. action movies. And and there's uh, we're, we're accustomed to uh, creating scenes uh, by piecing elements together. And we're going to have to continue to do that and actually uh, deploy new kinds of ways of piecing scenes together uh, to keep people at safe distances. I think the key is going to be identify, identifying ways. And we've already begun to do this. How we, our crews uh, and our cast members can work in pods and mm. at safe distances and kind of just zone off the work uh, and work in smaller teams that collaborate together. But everyone doesn't have to be on the set at once. We're kind of used to doing it that way where we'll right. have, you know, 150 people just on the set because they're waiting for the shot to be finished. But we don't have to work that way. We're going to have to work a little slower and it's going to cost a little bit more time and money. But we're still going to be able to make these movies. And so how much is – I mean, if you can maybe not quantify, but, but more the idea of you know, put some uh, – give us a sense of like how much of a delay this will ultimately mean for things getting done and maybe what it will look like for us as consumers. You know, are we seeing like movies delayed a year, six months? Like is there right. an average that you can sort of put on that, Frank? It's hard to quantify. It's a good question, Jason, and we're all trying to figure it out. Look, at the end of the day, we want to make certain that the movie-going experience, right, the viewer doesn't notice any difference. Yeah. Great movie, great stories, great entertainment, right? So how do we do that? And we know we're going to have to um, work, you know, in smaller groups and take more time. And it is going to delay this pipeline that's already being delayed by this virus, right? But um, so I... I Generally speaking, I think it's going to be 20% more time and money to get these projects through the pipeline until we have a vaccine and have better uh, uh, you know, technologies in place to protect our workers through the process. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, our guest at this hour, Frank Patterson, President and CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. So, Frank, what are you hearing from various studios, too, about what they're going through right now at this point and how they see things on the other side? You were talking a lot about the new protocols, but I am curious about some of the conversations you're having with uh, that entire industry. Well, as you might imagine, we are collaborating it's almost every day now with the various tax task forces, you know, the studios uh, with the studios and the guilds and the unions and the associations. And, you know, as far as the studios are concerned, of course, you, as you know, they're eager to get back to work. Uh, and it's just a question of how. Uh, this is a critical part of the business. You, you've been covering what's happened to, you know, Disney's uh, discussion today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, the uh, features and uh, the streaming shows that are in their pipeline are critically important for them right now, right? Uh, we have a long history of working uh, with Marvel, a key company in their portfolio. And, um, are you know, the studios are eager to see this content get through this pipeline up and running. And I think... We'll, we, we, we know the demand continues to be extremely high. And obviously, during this time period, people have been living off these streaming platforms. And it's critically important that we get this pipeline back up and we get this content produced. Uh, and I think we're going to be, uh, you know, sort of in, uh, you know, ready to go or uh, completely up again, let's say, uh, this fall, uh, once we have a chance to figure out how. Uh, and I know there's a real eagerness to get into 2021 and, and get these projects produced. Well, Frank, we know um, from your work and, and our work in previous discussions, this is a fiercely competitive business, you know, trying to get these movies. You guys have been incredibly successful. Atlanta has become, you know, really just an amazing hotbed for these big productions, you know, based on, on some of the work we've described you doing, as well as a lot of, you know, great incentives that the state has rolled out there is this an opportunity for some realignment some continued realignment when it comes to where movies are made and how they're made given the new protocols that are going to have to be uh put in place and and just given some of the uh moves that that folks have had to make in light of this you know it's a it's a great question jason what i'm noticing is that People are concerned and, and fearful about making certain that we're getting back to work safely and quickly. And what's happening is we're relying on all our relationships, right? And it's our business is like a lot of other industries. You know, we, we know we've worked with each other for years, in my case, decades, and you, everyone knows everybody, and you're relying on the people you've worked with in the past. And so I think Atlanta has become, in recent years, a real reliable partner in, in the film industry. Uh, and I think it's going to be seen as a critical part to getting us back. I think you're going to see a lot less travel to sort of exotic locations and to mm. cool, fun places around the world. Cast is not really excited about doing that right now. They want to go where they know they can be treated safely and with people they've worked with before. So I don't think we'll see a lot of realignment. I don't think what I think we'll see is just people being a lot more reserved about Mm. where they want to go to make movies. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think about, Carol, our conversation with Doug Steiner um, last week, and he was saying sort of the same thing. It's like, you got your crews, you got your people that, you know, 
you're used to working with, right, Carol? Right, exactly. And that whole idea of people not wanting to fly around, so you're going to work with your local crews, uh, and you want that. Um, what about the insurance angle of this? And Frank, I don't know if that's become a kind of a new aspect that the policies now become maybe even a bigger thing. They're more expensive because we know now health pandemics can shut everything down. That's right. And boy, this is just, you know, I feel like I've gone back to school. I've learned so much about so many different industries I had no interest in learning about. And of course, you know, the insurance and and, and exactly how we're going to solve the problems associated with coverage is really wide open right now, right? Because we can't simply just over-insure the problem, right? It's got to be a good value prop from both sides of the table. And we just don't know what that looks like at this point. Frank, I, I do wonder, you know, we're, we're asking questions. We just talked to uh, earlier in the hour, uh, literally the guy who invented the term FOMO. He's got a new book out. He uh, coined that when he was a student <laughs> at Harvard Business School. So there's that. So you're in good company here uh, in this edition of Bloomberg Business Week. But, you know, we asked him a question that, that I'll ask you. you know, what are you learning about, you know, sort of what people are doing now that may, you know, sort of remain? And, and I do wonder about, you know, how people consume content. You know, you alluded to Disney's earnings. They've now got 54 million people on Disney+. Plus. You know, these tentpole productions that you work on, they sort of rely on these big openings and crowds and, and things like that. How do you think about that aspect of the business going forward? It's, it's so um, – this is such a fun intellectual exercise because on one hand, I know – you know, we learned a long time ago from Aristotle and others that we as humans are social beings and we need to gather around story together and, and, and reflect with one another socially together. Right. Dark rooms uh, around the fire that is the, the movie screen. So I don't think the theater is going anywhere at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's value in the sort of value proposition of how we build uh, value around these products has been declining since 2003. Right. Yeah. Uh, it continued to fall. And we know that was happening. I, I really do think it's going to level off. Theaters are going to figure out a way to continue to host people more safely. We're going to still have that need to gather in the dark around a story. Uh, but it's going to be different, and, and it, it will continue to be these special events, like these big tentpole movies. You can't watch Avengers Infinity War. I mean, you know, come on. I, I couldn't wait to get to the theater to see that film. You know totally. I mean? I'm not going to watch it on my TV. There's no way. Right, right. And that is exactly the kind of event that theaters will continue to support. But So they're not going anywhere. They're just going to be less valuable in that value chain, right? Yeah. So I think um, – you know, I, I do think that our behaviors as consumers, we need live experiences, right? We need the theme parks. We need these things. And we're going to have to figure it out. But we're going to learn to behave, I think, a lot smarter around each other, to be a lot more respectful about each other's health, and to do it, uh, you know, in, uh, with, with kindness and, and the kind of joy that comes with consuming entertainment in that way. Nice yeah. way to end. And I yeah. do have to say that if we're if we're also not so eager to get on planes, those things that we can do simply like going to a movie, provided it's safe, that will become even more important to us. Yeah. 
right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Frank Patterson, thank you so much. Great thank to catch up so with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the time, being patient with us as well as we sort of maneuvered around uh, this crazy world that we live in. Frank Patterson is President and CEO of Pinewood Atlanta Studios, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. I have to say, Sam Zell earlier quoting Santayana and uh, <laughs> then Frank Patterson just dropping a little Aristotle. Where else do you get that? Where <laughs> else do you get that but Bloomberg Business Week? I'm just going to put it out there. And, and FOMO. And FOMO. Seriously, (laughs) it all comes together. Words of wisdom right here at Bloomberg Business Week. (laughs)